Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Ultimately, we will, by default, move towards a single-payer system. Then we can move on to making the most efficient system possible. Hey, hey, it's back to school and EpiPen prices are out of control. Meanwhile, insurers are dropping out of Obamacare left and right. And this just in. Our health care system is one sick patient that we're paying more than anyone else on the planet for. Paging two thoughtful physicians for their prescriptions. Stay with us. Today's episode is brought to you by Health Warrior, maker of Chia Bars. Why sacrifice taste for health when we put a man on the moon, after all? Sporting only 5 grams of sugar and 100 calories each, Health Warrior Chia Bars are the only bar with superfood chia seeds as the number one ingredient. They've become my go-to power snack with flavors like coconut, chocolate peanut butter, dark chocolate, banana nut, and personal favorite, mango. Pick some up at stores like Whole Foods, Wegmans, Target, or for my RVA listeners, Elwood Thompson's. If you're bold enough to buy a box of 15 bars, get 15% off at healthwarrior.com by entering code FULL15 at checkout. And by Elwood Thompson's. The success of Elwood Thompson's is determined by customer connection, steward happiness, and local community engagement. We intend to grow our business by offering clean, high-quality products at fair prices with friendly, knowledgeable customer assistance. Elwood's is a mission-first driven business. Real local RVA, and you must check out Brunch at Elwood's, now served every weekend, Saturdays till 11 a.m., Sundays till 2 p.m., and The Beat and Indian Wednesdays. Visit them at the top of Carytown and at elwoodthompsons.com. Joining us in studio, a pair of decorated physicians. Hopefully they've paid off their med school debt by now. Dr. Phil Duncan, venerable Central Virginia cardiologist, former chair of the Association of Black Cardiologists. His practice is heart care for you. Welcome, sir. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me, Robin. And Dr. Shave Kapadia, also a veteran cardiologist, now co-founder and chief medical officer of IGBO, a VC-backed on-demand health labor platform. There's a lot to share in terms of his experience as a physician in administration on the business side, seeing what the points of stress are right now. Thank you, Doc. Hey, thanks a lot, Robin. Great to be here. I have a jump ball for either of you. You know, this has really been pungent in the news this week where it's kind of front and center. You you bump into parents at um, summer camp drop-off and everybody is talking about the EpiPen. And last week, everybody's talking about the deterioration of Obamacare. Straight up, what is wrong? I know this is a meeting of life question with healthcare in this country, Dr. Phil. Right now, at least in my view, it, it's that we have very high expectations of what, of what we use in medicine in terms of technology, et cetera. We don't have as high expectations of, of outcomes. And also, access is an issue because medicine is so costly. You know, I, I was... Uh, in Tanzania, not uh, a few weeks ago, actually, and they're looking at expanding their healthcare system. And you know, they they're, they're looking and they realize that, for example, there, nationalizing healthcare is something that they're going to do out of you know out of practicality, just because they can't afford to make the kinds of mistakes that we've made here with a very expensive system. That's the best system in the world, or, or the best care available in the world, but available to so few people that we don't have the best outcomes in the world. Dr. Kapadi, I want to know what makes the United States so 
kind of culturally singular? Is it about the free market system here? You look at the EpiPen as a metaphor in Mylan Labs, and this is something that cost a dollar, a couple of dollars at most to manufacture in terms of cost of goods sold. Uh, but the CEO was on CNBC this morning kind of defending the enormous price hike. Some people are having to pay $600 out of pocket for a pair of EpiPens. Why does that get so larded up that by the end of, of the process, down the food chain, when a parent wants to buy it, she's concerned for her son, it might end up costing her $600, even with insurance? Well, we, you know, uh, we don't have a free market healthcare system. Uh, if you look at all the other verticals, uh, clearly the market forces determine pricing, and there's a lot of transparency in terms of pricing and quality. Healthcare is completely opaque. And so as purchasers, consumers, patients really have no uh, transparency in terms of price or quality of the goods that they're actually purchasing. In fact, their doctors are influencing it, but they have no uh, transparency to any of this. And so the real payers uh, and where the deals are really done are between the payers, insurance companies, the health systems, and the pharmacy benefit managers. And that's that's the problem, you know, in in this country. Um, and so, you know, we have the best and the worst healthcare system. And and I think you had mentioned some quotes here. You know, twenty percent of GDP is a cost way higher than most countries. European countries are in the nine to eleven percent uh, GDP in terms of their healthcare spend. And so, and yet, if you look at our outcomes, we've got these high-priced drugs. What do we have to say for it? We're, we're 35th in terms of life expectancy behind Costa Rica. And so we've got a lot to do. So the, we have the best healthcare system. So if you, if you have acute care needs, if you have a heart attack, if you have a stroke, if you have a motor vehicle accident, I wouldn't want to be anywhere else on the, the face of this planet. Where does erectile dysfunction rank on that spectrum? In terms of... Uh, Come on, I'm trying to liven this up. You see all the ads for it on TV. I always joke that if an alien were to land, right, and watch the Super Bowl or say, and you'd see all these erectile dysfunction ads, you would think that it's a national epidemic. Or you, you know why that is. If you is, move someone why? from North Korea who came over here, ED, I would think that those things are not probably covered by all insurance plans or they're very high outlay. There so, must be a reason. So they're not, it's, it's interesting because contraceptives are not covered. And, uh, um, some of the ED drugs are covered, but it's it, the fact of the matter is we're a pill in the pocket type of country, right? We're not really looking at root cause. Why do people have ED? They're stressed. They're diabetic. They got high blood pressure. They smoke. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I mean, I've seen this interesting quote. They they said, uh, I think it's a quote. Lots of salespeople use: "Don't sell the product, sell the solution." Right. So what we have to do is, you know, often what we do is we have to first create the problem so we can sell the solution. You know, that's the product. And, and, and that's what we have with ED and so many other conditions that we that we look at, you know, that that are, are sort of low priority issues. I think, mean, OK, to the guy with ED, maybe it's high priority. But but overall, in terms of overall health care, it's a low priority issue if we want to have the best health outcomes. There are a couple of things with this that I don't understand. I mean, clearly. Uh, Dr. Capetti, you're at the the nexus of kind of technology and bringing costs down in healthcare, and you've you've been inside the lab, outside the lab, inside the boardroom. Um, technology, you would think, would help disintermediate these things and bring the opacity out of the process. I mean, you talk about airlines and kayak. You talk about even getting a quote for auto insurance and going to something like Compare.com. Um, in theory, you should be able to go and shop for a procedure in terms of availability and cost and 
access and um, quality assurance, and there, there has to be something like a Yelp to rate doctors. In practice, it's vexingly difficult in terms of the balkanization of insurance plans. Are you open access? Are you HMO? Do you need pre-authorization? How did, how did it get this tangled? Because our, our system is siloed, it's disconnected, and uh, it's a poor experience. So from end to end, uh, you've got healthcare systems that, you know, take care of, of, the, of the patients that run through their spaces. But 99% of a patient's healthcare journey is outside that, that ecosystem, and nobody's monitoring and managing that space. So until we actually shift care delivery and care experiences outside into the home and into retail, which is happening, it's starting to happen, and that's where technology mobility is starting to, 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 to take place. I mean, if you look at... You know, there's a lot of healthcare innovations that are really trying to connect the provider and the patient, but all with limited, limited success. And unfortunately, we we haven't had the same success in healthcare as as our consumer-facing you know companies like Uber and Airbnb and TaskRabbit, which really are able to unlock uh, these assets like cars and people and places, really with amazing success and scale. So healthcare is ripe for that disruption. It's happening. It's going to take an ecosystem of technology partners. Part of the issue here is electronic health records and where does my data lie? And uh, that's a real challenge um, because right now it's still very siloed and disconnected. You see these extraordinary, you know, kind of people doing it yourself in the absence of, say, a TaskRabbit or an Uber for healthcare, going to places like Argentina or Brazil or the Far East and getting procedures that aren't sanctioned here in the United States. I've heard horror stories from a couple in Miami, actually, that went to get a special plastic surgery in Argentina and was held up at gunpoint because they knew that's where rich Americans go to buy kind of a cash procedure there. Uh, uh, people, especially with homeopathic medicine or cancer or end-of-life palliative care, the system here is so backed up that they're just saying, look, let me, let me look past the borders. Part of it, too, is that it's not a health care system, essentially. It's a disease management system. And, we, and so we need to move towards health care. So, you know, it, it's too complex, I think, for folks to, to really look at, like, certain commodities. It's not truly a commodity because it's a combination of— It's not very fungible. No, no. And, and so, you know, you might be able to go somewhere to get a procedure done at a lower, you know, at a lower cost— um, but that's not what healthcare is really all about. And, and you know, as Shave was saying, it's, you know, 85, 90 percent of the healthcare actually happens outside of what we call healthcare settings. It's at home. It's in, it's in the workplace. It's in what people, nor, you know, normally do. You know, if someone has a condition, for example, and they need to take a medication chronically, well, one, yeah, you have to find the right medication. But most of us can figure that out ultimately, you know, maybe some trial and error for a condition. But you also have, have to have buy-in and faith from the patient to do it. You have to be able to assess what the psychosocial you know, environment is to know if they if they if they can do it. And and to your point with EpiPen, you know, if if you've got the greatest medicine, you know, available at a price that's that's not accessible, then then you don't have it essentially. Mm. Um, this morning, I, I heard with that EpiPen something really great. They said that they are going to lower the cost but keep the price the same. What's mm. that about? Yeah, the CEO, uh, she tried to defend herself on CNBC this morning. It was pretty catastrophic. Uh, CEO Heather Bresch, who's the daughter of a U.S. senator, she came out and said the system incentivizes higher prices and that, that, 
the healthcare system is broken, trying to justify that Mylan, the parent company, has increased the price more than 400% in the past decade. And no one is more frustrated than me. My frustration is the list price is $608. There's a system. I laid out that there are four or five hands that the product touches and companies that it goes through before it ever gets to that patient at the counter. Everyone should be frustrated. I'm hoping that this is an inflection point for this country. Dr. Kapadia, it's like what they say about divorce. It's, it's everybody's fault, but it's nobody's fault. <laughs> <laughs> no, really. I mean, this is a plausible diffusion of responsibility. If you want to, you know, if, if in the three minutes that you might get with your primary care physician and you want to shake your fist at the at the sky, the doctor will say, yeah, I feel your pain, man. They stink. You know, I, I probably won't take insurance next year, you know, and then you say the insurance companies are like, well, we, we blame these providers out there that are gouging us. The government is saying that all you guys need to behave. I mean, it is it's almost like the perfect heist. It is. I, I think there's there's the blame game can go all around, um, and I think you know providers too, like physicians are are also to blame. We we had an opportunity to band together uh, in a unified way, and I, I I think we we haven't done a good job of that. And so as a result, other people have taken advantage. Uh, you look at uh, health insurance companies. You look at you look at health systems as they're trying to integrate and buy out doctors, and so. I think physicians have decreasing leverage to really make impact. Now, having said that, there is plenty of opportunity, and, and I am very optimistic as a, as a practicing physician because there is so much that's broken in healthcare that there, there's so much opportunity to, to, to fix things. And so, you know, at the very core, I imagined, uh, along with my partner, Nuno Valentine, that, you know what, if we could just start with one, one space – and try to to make sense of it, then we could try to scale that scale that in other yeah. areas. And so we looked at lab testing, and we we said, you know, how, there is so much amazing science out there. Why do we why do we practice trial and error medicine when we can get the right test at the right time and prescribe the right drug yeah, or uncover hidden risk? A doctor's lament will be, okay, here I'm drawing up this prescription. It's kind of on faith. You have to go out there, make sure you get this blood drawn. You have to make sure it's drawn correctly. You have to make sure that if there's esoteric testing and everything. Yes. And it's on faith, even though it's critical to get uh, those vials of blood and the follow-up from the patient, a lot can be left to chance and, yeah. and preference. So let me give you some stats that we know is so that 70 to 80% of doctors' decision-making is driven by diagnostics, predominantly lab testing, right, which tends to be fairly inexpensive on the, on the scale of, of, of costs of tests when you go all to imaging. But only 70% of <clears throat> patients actually get the test done that their doctors request of them. They get so the workflow is I see a patient sees me I give them a lab rec you need to get this this and this done make sure it's fasting and go get it so 70% of the time they do it 30 to 40% of the time they don't and I'll never know if they never get that testing done and as a result patients we don't have visibility in terms of important diagnostics that could be done whether it's a cholesterol test or whether it's a diabetes marker or whether you're monitoring a chronic condition or a chronic medication for efficacy or toxicity potentially. So the, the opportunity was how could we democratize number one? We have all we have three thousand specialty labs in the country. We've got some big reference labs in the country. How can we democratize access to all this great science uh, to the physician on on behalf of the patient? And so that's what we, we, we contemplated IGBO to really create the shared services model 
where, hey, you know what? We can have this broad network of labs, and now we can ensure almost 100% reliability that when that doctor orders a lab test, it's going to get done, and it's going to get done in a great experience. It takes a particular audacity as a, as a venture capitalist-minded person, as a startup-minded person, but also as a person who's experienced the bureaucracy and the pushback internally, as a care provider and a person on, on administration. It, it, it reminds me of the founding of Uber, how you know, you're, you're, you're in Paris, it's New Year's Eve, you and your girlfriend can't get a cab, and you're like, screw this. You know, we need to come up with this thing. Now, if that was my predicament, I'd be that Woody Allen type person was like, oh, no, I agree. But what are you going to do? Push back against the Taxi Licensing Commission of New York. And, you know, they probably have the Teamsters in their pocket and all this. It'll never work. But there's a particular audacity about innovators and startup people and entrepreneurs that, you know what? It makes a lot of sense. You have an enormously balkanized blood testing community out there individual kind of phlebotomists and freelancers. Yes, you have the lab corps and the mm-hmm. um, Quest Diagnostics. What if we bring them together? It's an on-demand economy. You know, you can answer calls at your convenience. We could connect them to doctors. We can have accountability. I would have immediately thought, no way, I'm going to get scuppered by all the insurance companies and all of the conglomerates that control both the care providers and who gets paid and who doesn't get paid. We're unlocking interesting assets where the 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 problem that we're solving is access and convenience and none of those are really governed by insurance companies or anyone else in fact nobody's really even seeing that as a it, the, the beauty of the model is sort of like uber is that people are just like this is the status quo it works it works inefficiently but it kind of works and so no one's paid any attention to it the beauty of our model is it's very simple it's the lab pays igbo and the IGBO pays the phlebotomist. It's a fairly simple, straightforward transaction. The patient sometimes might pay a convenience fee to have their blood drawn in the home. The providers, the, pay, the, the docs, don't have to pay anything. Insurance companies, in the typical model, don't have to pay anything. Uh, so it's a pretty clean model. And the beauty of it is there's optionality, right? So the doc has options as to how he can get the blood drawn. The patient has complete options. And so I always believe, I believe that what we're doing is creating access and convenience and that convenience leads to compliance. And compliance is critical, right? As, as we look at, you know, whether patients are getting their blood tests done, whether, again, they're taking their medications, all of a sudden now you hardwire the diagnostics and it leads to downstream visibility of other care management intervention options. So that's the model is that the disruption here is that it doesn't involve the conventional actors uh, in the healthcare industry. And the other interesting thing is that it's a win-win, right? Win-win-win-win. So nobody loses. So unlike Uber, where you've got the yellow cabs clearly displaced by Uber, there's nobody displaced here. Uh, the labs win because they get access to, to to the doctors and the patients. And in fact, we can, with our network, emerging labs can suddenly have a distribution network in which uh, sales and distribution network through, through IGBO as they're coming into the marketplace. Doctors win because... You know what? They're getting the tests. They're getting quality tests done by uh, on behalf of their patients. There's no administrative hassles that they have to deal with. And now potentially, they could have access to this amazing science that's curated by Igbo to say, "Hey, listen, I want to order this test, this test, that test." So that's the win on the on the on the provider side. On the patient side, it's a clear win, right? Because now they're getting the blood testing they need to get in, in a way that's convenient. Um, and then um, I don't know about you, but I like to pass out when I get my blood tested. <laughs> and uh, I have the I have the the very nice women at Bon Secours humor me and uh, baby me 
And in the worst case scenario, go out and get me a bottle of Coke or something else like that. They say it happens to 30-something and 40-something men a lot. We're pansies disproportionately. But now you can do it in the convenience of your own home. Pass out in the convenience (laughs) of my own home and come to and have, you know, dump me in the bathtub with ice cubes if I pass out. Uh, We are talking to Dr. Phil Duncan, uh, Central Virginia cardiologist, former chair of the Association of Black Cardiologists, and Dr. Shav Kapadia, co-founder and chief medical officer of IGBO, a VC-backed on-demand health labor platform. You can get your blood drawn through IGBO, and that is going to be the first of many procedures that can be scaled into this platform. You've gotten a lot of press uh, in terms of uh, VC-backed interest and everything else that's gone on with uh, Theranos, which was supposed to be the next great thing. You could only take a, a, a drop of blood and we're the future and we're worth $10 billion, not. Um, Dr. Duncan, I, you've been in practice now for almost 40 years. And if you can, take us back to your journey and what you've traversed and kind of your recollections of, of frustration. When did, you, when did you hit up against disillusionment that, look, I got into this to practice, to be a caregiver, to look in the whites of the eyes of my patients? One love, I always hear you saying, but you hit up against the bureaucracy. Talk to us about that. You know, I mean, my perspective of medicine really is it's, it's about relationship. And that relationship is mostly between patients and the provider and, and segments of the healthcare system that they touch. Um, with time, what we've seen is more and more other entities get in the middle of that relationship. And, and to what, what Dr. Capati was saying, you know, what Shay was saying is that, you know, we sort of let that go. You know, we allowed, you know, one, one we started to get too enamored of technology. So, so we forgot that this is, uh, as, as one of my mentors likes to say, and I, I heard also from Nuno, you know, medicine has to be not only high tech, but also high touch. So we, we, you know, we, we allowed that piece to start to go away. And, and that's, that's been the toughest part or, or what I've seen in my, in my journey through medicine. You know, one of the things I look at is healthcare as being as being about transitions, but not the traditional transitions like we talk about hospital home. The transition is from good health habits to preventative medicine to identification of conditions that may be chronic conditions to acute conditions and then hopefully back to chronic conditions. And we have to talk about what happens when when the medical system, you know, when our drugs and our machines and our technology can no longer serve you, making that transition through the end of life. And, you know, what we've done is we have all these seams that have become gaps. So labs, for example, that's one of those seams. But, you know, if you have two drawing stations for a particular lab and an insurance company says you can only get yours done at one of the, the or the other and a patient lives, you know, nine miles away and has transportation issues. Now that seam in that healthcare where the where the provider needs information, that becomes a gap. You know, when someone goes into the hospital and the hospital has certain things on formulary, the patient has medicines at home, they they go from the hospital to home. Well actually that 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 became uh, that that's a seam in medicine because we need the hospitals that became a gap you know when i write a prescription you know for an epipen or for I'm, i have a particular interest in heart failure so there's a number of great new heart failure drugs but when i write a prescription and the patient goes to the pharmacy and they say okay um 
this is going to be your co-pays $45 and they live on a fixed income, or they say it's going to be $450 and they don't have it. Well, now, even though it's a great te- you know, technology, great advance, you know, that's a semen medicine that now became a gap. And, and so, you know, again, to Shay's point, this is about we have these issues that means, okay, where, where these gaps exist, it means there's a tremendous opportunity to begin to close them. So, you know, I'm enamored of the technology we have since medicine's behind in the use of the te- technology. We've, we've got great ways to use it, but, but it's about looking at and saying, how do, we, how do we leverage this to close those, those gaps in medicine and maintain that relationship between providers and, and patients? Now, Dr. K, a lot of the volatility and uncertainty emanates from the fact that person A's insurance will vary wildly from person B's insurance. And I, I want to kind of start the conversation of what makes health insurance so particular. I mean, if you buy auto insurance, you're not going to take it to Goodyear and say, this should cover my tires, this should cover my brakes, this should cover my automatic transmission fluid. You know that there's certain things that you have to pay out of pocket. Health insurance is so peculiar in this country, one, in that it's disproportionately linked to your job security and where you worked. It's not a free marketplace. It's not like you have full choice in doing it. It's not that there's full transparency and kind of price shopping, obviously with the Obamacare exchanges. And two, this expectation, which is never met uh, because, you know, co-pays become higher, levels of coverage de- deteriorate. Um, it seems like it's just bound to, 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 to fritter away over time. No one I know is happy with their health insurance plan. Not a single person. No, and I think I think you're absolutely right. I think the friction is now all of a sudden people, consumers, are having to have some skin in the game. You know, in the yesteryears, um, you know, in, pretty much everything was covered. And, uh, you know, me- when, when, when Medicare started in, in the 60s, you know, the, the swath of, of medical ex- medication expenses wasn't even imagined at that time. You know, over the years, most things have been covered. And so Americans have been wanting the best care yesterday, and they've largely got it without any skin in the game. Now, all of a sudden, the rub is now we're talking about high deductible plans and bigger co-pays. And now people are like, I've got I've got to shop for the best care. No the- pun intended, but flesh that out, skin in the game. I mean, you were, you were, you were insulated from having to know the, the nitty-gritty. Is that it? Yeah, because as purchasers of care— they didn't care about pricing. Uh, they 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 would they would get a they would their doctor would prescribe a treatment and they would get the treatment. And so, as consumers, as purchasers of care, really didn't have to pay for anything. I mean, they paid their premiums, but otherwise, they were there was a barrier um, between the price and quality of the goods they were getting. But it's almost like that that parable of the frog boiling slowly in the water. You know, over time. Year after year, if you hung on to the same insurance plan, that it would be frittered away, that they would nickel and dime you in certain places. You'd find that the new cards would send you would say, you know, you know, out of pocket drug cost maximum now fifty dollars versus twenty five dollars last year. Mm-hmm. How 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 is a how is a person not mindful of that you are getting charged for it and your premiums are going up and in healthcare in in in, in employer related plans they're invariably asking you every year to shell out more. I don't know of any other sector in the U.S. economy where inflation is tolerated like that. Not in electronics, not in clothing. I guess there must be something super unique about healthcare. Single payer. Talk to me about single payer. 
Well, it's an interesting. Open I mean, that up because it, I mean, it was it was the most radioactive. <laughs> yeah. Doctor Doctor Phil was the most radioactive part of the ACA debate several yeah. years ago. The public option, you know, the public option is like it's like saying super fun site, you know, Godzilla. Um, why is that so taboo in this country, and it's not the case in Canada or Israel or um, in the Scandinavian countries? Because initially, we let it be termed as socialized medicine. That was the initial problem, as opposed to universal health care or single payer. So, so that, that was the beginning. At, at the end of the day, you know, your question about insurance companies. Well, the truth is, if, you're, if everybody's in one big risk pool, you know, sad to say, you don't really need insurance companies. You know, if you think that we have so many dollars to pay for health care, it, it really is a question of how's that dollar get broken up? What percentage goes to health care? Probably, you know, one of the quiet pieces of, of ACA and the part I found most intriguing was the idea that even insurers had to start to, to leverage, you know, so many cents out of every dollar to health care and not to other costs. But in reality, if you have a single payer, you don't have to worry about that. Everybody's in the same risk pool. Everything that's not purely administrative can fully, be fully defined single payer for us. It's the government, one insurance plan, the United States, everybody is under one policy effectively. And if you look, we're already two thirds of the way there, right? I mean, if you look at Medicare and Medicaid together, and two government programs and TRICARE, <laughs> yeah. you've covered about 70% of 60 to 70%, right, of the mm -hmm. American population. So the rest of it's commercial insurance. Uh, so we're already two thirds of the way to government care, and so I don't know where. It's surprising why the though, debate. If I have a conversation with physicians, private physicians, they they recoil at this. A lot of them tell you know you get a couple of beers into my cousins and everything. It's like, listen, the hell that I went through, the cadavers that I I, I cut through, um, the misery, the depression of med school, the uncertainty, the debt, and everything. For me to go into this abyss, if I had known that there would be this enormous risk of me being effectively a quasi-governmental employee or we're going to mediocritize the system like we do the post office or Amtrak, I wouldn't have signed up for this. Physicians are human. And like most humans, we're irrational. So... <laughs> You know, so so that's that's what happens with, with, with but, physicians. But you want to get paid. You do want to get paid. It's not a labor of love. Well, I mean, you do things. You go to Tanzania, but you know, you're not. You th this is expensive. There's malpractice insurance. There's an opportunity cost of time. Well, see, here's the thing. You have to take orgo. If I have a single, I love that actually. But I hated if I orgo, have, man, I knew immediately <laughs> I was like going to go doctor. If you have a single payer, then you have one set of rules. When I go in the office now and I have, you know, not just, you know, even with my patients who have, let's say, Medicare insurance, they have different plans. And, you know, so I'm, you know, I'm dealing with other people's rules. It's just I'm dealing with 15, 20, 25, 30 other people's rules. If I have a single payer, I've got one set of rules. You know, my biggest challenge actually in straight Medicare and Medicaid are some of the easiest to deal with because I know that most things are on their formulary. I don't have to call for prior authorization for a number of tests. You know, I'm able to to say this is what I want to achieve, get my testing and move on. You enjoy dealing with Medicare? I yeah, I do actually. Because it's, of the simplicity, it's, it's, the standard. It's straightforward. You know, they're you know, they they have limits, but but it's straightforward. You know, they may not reimburse and now actually they reimburse better than some of the private payers, but but it's very, very straightforward. When I have to not only deal with a private insurer's plan, but the fact that they have 12 different plans, each with different rules, 
then that just makes my day that much more complex. But because we've had this label when it first came out of this is socialized medicine, what are we, communists? You know, that's why it got such a bad rap. You know, why I brought up Tanzania and other parts of the developing world is they realize they can't afford to go down the road we went. So they're going to this not as a political statement, just as mere practicality. If we want to provide health care for our people, and I'm one of the folks who think that, you know, if you organize yourself as a country, that should be one of the rights of your people. If we're going to provide that. Then, then we have to do it in the setting of some type of single payer system. Everybody's in the pool. Here are the rules. Let's let's leverage the, our resources towards getting the best outcomes. Not, you know, it turns out in the private sector, you know, whether it's hospital systems or insurance companies, you have executives that want to be reimbursed based on share value. You have people who own the shares. It's part of their four hundred one ks. You know, you have a lot of other folks that are bellying up to the bar there. Well, this is healthcare. This is, you know, this isn't going in and deciding what kind of soft drink you want. This is healthcare. Mm-hmm. Nobody plans to be sick. Uh, everybody wants to be healthy. So, so single payer actually makes the most sense. But we have to come up with a nice new sexy name for it that everybody will love. Dr. K, I mean, this is not a new lament, not by any stretch. You go back to 1993 and the first time the United States was introduced to its first lady, Hillary Rodham Clinton. She almost immediately rolled up her sleeves and jumped into healthcare reform, and there was tremendous pushback. Um, you remember those ads, what was it, Harry and something, the, the, <laughs> the couple that was like, yeah. I don't know, you know, call your congressman. What I don't understand is it seems so easy to, to kind of rile up the electorate by saying, you know, they're going to make decisions for you, or what were these death panels, oh, death or panels. the rhetorical yeah. stuff, but right. then Medicare, for example, for your mom, or Medicaid for your indigent um, cousin, or something like that. You can't even begin to wrest those away from the same people who would howl at the moon if you talked about a public option. These yeah. are popular plans. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think, you know, I I think— I just you, don't get that dichotomy in this country. You're willing to tolerate inflation and mediocrity for everyone in the middle. Right. Um, the very poor and the very old can have health care at a certain standard, but everyone else kind of has to fend for themselves. It's not, it's not at all a God-given right. Right. And it, and it, it, it needs to be. I mean, I, I really think that, you know, medicine is living in a sea of mediocrity with only islands of excellence. And I think there's a lot of waste, a lot of, I think Tom Daschle, one of the senator, former senators said that um, there's a lot of waste in medicine. And so as I, I know it's not answering your question, but I, I, I feel compelled to, to say this is that, you know, 20% of the folks are 80% of the spend. And if we could, you know, and our, our whole system is incentivized to do things, right? To do procedures. That's where the highest it's 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 all the incentives are all misaligned in terms of the patient outcome standpoint. So our whole fee for service model has created tremendous expenses uh, for procedures and medications that largely I I would question the need for and particularly the spend in the last six months of life is 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 crazy. So you've got this expensive system but then all everyone else is having to pay for this uh, this this expensive expensive healthcare system. So a single payer type of model would allow to distribute those those type of costs, and then you could start to focus on the real sort of elephant in the room, which is you know prevention and wellness, which really isn't paid for today, and and is not even it's still lip service. So 
even though we're moving to this value-based type of care, it's all around chronic disease management, which is fine. We've got to figure that out. But really, really where we need to go is really to, to, to prevent illness and, and create wellness in this country. And, uh, but the system is not anchored in that direction uh, at all. So, And indeed, a report by the Commonwealth Fund last year uh, found that pharmaceuticals as well as health services were more expensive in the United States than in other developed countries. Despite spending more on health care, Americans have fewer hospitals and physician visits than most of the other countries. But Americans appear to be greater consumers of medical technology, which includes diagnostic imaging like MRIs and CT scans, as well as pharmaceuticals. One example here of uh, the 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 you know, the huge chasm between what we get and what we pay for in, in other developed countries. Heart bypass in the U.S. costs seventy five grand on average compared to $42,000 in Australia, the second highest amount among the other countries. An appendectomy in the U.S. costs an average of $14,000 compared to $9,845 in Switzerland, which had the second highest average. I mean, uh, it's just so striking to see us compared to other developed countries. Again, I'm not comparing you to Guatemala. In this case, I, I'm, you know, other developed countries that have uh, lower infant mortality in some respects, higher standard of living, uh, maybe higher taxes in those countries, certainly. But the quality of living, um, the quality of care, uh, life expectancy, uh, early mortality. I mean, I, I would think that a lot more people in the United States would be up in arms. And yes, it was. And yet it was such an uphill battle. For There's the so Obama many layers to this. I think about it, and Phil, I guess, I mean, I know he'll want to comment too. But I look at meds and medications, and so, you know, we have chosen as a country not to negotiate at the government level with pharma, right? And so, hence the pricing that you see. But the rest of the world is getting lower prices, so we're subsidizing the rest of the, the planet. I think in terms of medication, so I, I see that at one point. I think if you look at you know, the expense in a health system, you know, you've got to look at legal malpractice and how that drives up costs. You have to look at intermediaries uh, that often drive costs. All these middlemen, you know, everyone is, you know, scratching each other's back. So that's, that's those are the drivers of, of cost inflation in my mind. And then the health system has to just cost shift. You know, they've, you know, on some level, they, some percentage of their care is charity. And so, they have to absorb that cost, and then they shift the other cost to the other folks that that pay. And so, a pill of Tylenol costs a hundred bucks. Now, how ridiculous is that? We have to deal with the idea that there's a lot of fantasy here. So, you know, so I, I've shared with folks the idea that if I get you to believe that the dragon exists, then it's not a stretch to say that it talks or that it's pink. So, you know, in it, you know. It, in medicine in, in the U.S., often, you know, we we put these things out there that, you know, this is what you need. You know, okay, you fell and hit your head, you need a CT scan. No, you don't. You, you know, as you said, you, you know, you were getting a little older and, you know, so you need an ED drug. You know, that's, you know, I got you to believe the dragon exists and, yeah, I can take, take you anywhere. There's an interesting... Uh, paradox that occurred in, in Cuba after the fall of, of the Soviet Union. I found it fascinating because what happened after the fall of the so Soviet Union, Cuba lost its, its subsidies from the Soviet Union, and therefore they had scarcity. With scarcity, they had decreased caloric intake, and they stopped driving cars because they didn't have the oil subsidies. People started driving bikes. As a matter of fact, the government provided bikes. Well, what they saw is 
cardiovascular disease rates plummeted after that. As things, and as we see now, as things are opening up, they're starting, they, they are starting to have an epidemic mm. uh, of obesity and diabetes. That's becoming more of a problem, and cardiovascular disease is on the rise again. So, again, to the point that, that, that Shave made is there's a lot more to health care than just procedures and drugs. But in America, we've been led to believe that that's what health care is, is medications and, and more, you know, wonderful procedures and, and, and things that allow you to, to, you know, to whole body scans, et cetera. Well, that's, that's not, not how we provide health care. You know, we provide health care by having things like safe, potable water for people, uh, you know, limiting, we, we have, I think, several places in the country where they have decreased the consumption of high sugar drinks and they have, as a result, decreased weights and, and new case diabetes rates. You know, some of this is not really rocket science, but it's it's trying to say, OK, what's the best we know? How do we apply that to get the best outcomes? Our system isn't based on that. Our system is based on fantasies, and our system is based on the idea that, you know, you can do whatever you want all your life, smoke, drink, you know, have, you know, I don't want to say anything against Twinkies, but, you know, 25 Twinkies a day, you know, and, and then when you get this, somehow our system can, can miraculously make you better. It, it doesn't happen that way. Full disclosure, that is Dr. Phil Duncan. His practice is heart care for you in Chester, Virginia. He's a venerable cardiologist, uh, 40 years in the business, former chair of the Association of Black Cardiologists, and he's joined by Dr. Shave Kapadia, founder and chief medical officer of IGBO. Uh, Dr. Kapadia, if you can talk about the deterioration of, of what we've come to know as Obamacare, the ACA. You see this news that Aetna is pulling out. Um, an estimated 168,000 patients in the 11 states from which Aetna is pulling back are getting dropped, mostly in southern and rural areas. I mean, they come out and say, what do you guys want from us? I mean, you're, you're letting anybody kind of sign up from this and you're, you're sticking us with pools of unhealthy people. And meanwhile, on the, on the healthier end, a lot of people are just shopping around. Um, talk about the flaws of the ultimate implementation of Obamacare, which was, after all, very treacherous. You had to make enormous compromises and then cross your fingers that the Supreme Court would let it slide. So you can look at it, you know, like any startup, having been in two startups myself, you know, you learn from your failures, and you, but you can't be afraid to take risk if you believe it's the right thing to do. And as you mentioned that, you know, Healthcare is a right. It, it, it is something that every American needs in this country to access to, to basic healthcare needs. And the intention behind ACA, in my opinion, was really to provide access to the 39 million, you know, Americans that didn't have health care. And so, yes, it, it, it has a lot of holes. It has a lot of flaws, but it's a journey. And, uh, you can you can criticize it all you want, but provide a better alternative, and and really what I would say again, knowing my journey as an entrepreneur, is that yeah you 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 you're a, it's about rapid cycle iteration, okay? So you, you you put something out there, you test it, and then you fix it, and then you pivot, and and that's really what needs to happen with ACA. Now currently the problem is is you know they don't have enough lower risk. Uh, participants as they expected. And so the commercial players are, are taking a hit 
for sure. Now, there's ways around that. I think I think the government could provide some carrots in there to really entice other folks to to, to sign up. And uh, I think that's got to be the vision. I think as a country, we've got to align ourselves around what is the right thing to do. The right thing to do is to have everyone have access. So we have to we have to we have to understand what what is the problem that we want to solve, and the problem is is access and and, and to healthcare. Um, and then figure out what's the right solution behind it and what's what's the technology we need to build behind that to solve that problem and then market that. Uh, I mean that's that's the basic pyramid of 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 a startup as you, as you start to fix a problem. So, yes, it's in its current situation, it has problems, but it has increased access to to many more Americans than when it first started, you know, a few years ago. So, but if there are no private insurers left in certain islands, like it's Pinal County in Arizona, has zero private insurers now. The first in the nation to have no Affordable Care Act providers. What happens if this becomes a trend? What happens if it becomes a copycat crime among all the other insurers? I mean, United Health has cried foul. Public option. But how, what what happens then? I mean, the public option, if it was so radioactive, in the deliberations here. Do you essentially, and this is the cynic talking, do you have mm. to have the system collapse and cave in on itself for people to realize, like, what is its 2008 crisis moment for, okay, we have to start talking potentially nationalization or single payer. We, we have we to just start might. talking honestly about it. No, really. I mean, we, we, you just might need that because so much of this is about, about mindset. So so I look at what Aetna did, and I said, that's, that's great. I understand because... They're a business, and, and they have a business model. And I think, you know, for-profit businesses should do what they do well, and their goal is to make money. And if they can't make money in a market, you know, they shouldn't be Pull there. Yeah. Right. But what they've done is they've created the opportunity because of that collapse for the public option to become more viable. And, and I think ultimately Would you explain healthcare- what happens mechanically? Is it the default that more people are able to sign up for Medicaid? Does that fill the vacuum by default? If these people keep dropping out, is there kind of a creeping single payer? Do you see what I'm saying? Well, right, but Medicaid is is cut off at a certain po- income level, so it, it, so it you solves- also you said before Medicare is the other option, and then right. what's the third one? Try Tricare, Tricare which is government. Yeah. I mean, which is uh-huh. military insurance. Basically, Medicare for all, I and mean, that's what what it's going to come down to. You know, when you look, you know, when we're talking about that cost administrative cost per dollar paid. I think in the state of Virginia, at, at least a c- couple of years ago, there, you know, even though Medicaid reimbursement is very low, for every dollar they got for health care, they spent about 95 cents towards health care. As opposed to prior to ACA, we had insurers mm-hmm. up in the range of 30 to 40 cents to administration, seven, you know, 60 to 70% towards, towards health care. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so, yes, we may need to have that terrible collapse in order to build out a system, which is what we know we need already. It's just harder to get the American psyche to wrap their minds around it because it's been, you know, it's been taboo for so long as socialized medicine. Yeah, Dr. Kapadia, you are a warm-hearted, warm-blooded, cold-eyed physician, though. As a cold-eyed investor, I kind of want to get at at some of your criticisms where you step back from this and say— um, what what can in the private market, what's left of the private market, do to incent more players like you to go out and find the low-hanging fruit in this cacophony of a system? I mean, very few people out there, if the system is broken, they wouldn't be tempted to say, you know what, I can go out there and start consolidating 
um, the quality of care and the access of care to phlebotomists. I mean, that's low-hanging fruit. And once we master that, we move up to, I don't know, let's say chiropractors or someone else, someone else who can do something at home until people realize like now suddenly Uber is worth, what, $70 billion. And it Mm -hmm. was inconceivable five years ago, and now it is the industry standard. Um, You're forging ahead regardless, and your, your venture capitalists are saying do it in spite of the system kind of falling apart with private insurers or the unknown future of ACA. Well, I mean, you've got to start somewhere, right? So in an effort to to provide access to to, to care, you know, our platform can do that at, at least at the blood diagnostics level. And then we imagine, as I said, you know, engaging other kinds of health labor like nurses or therapists or imaging that and enhancing mobility to that. I do feel that it, it's there's no winner takes all on the private side. It's going to be an ecosystem of partners that come together to try to fix this problem. So the innovation is not going to come from within a healthcare system, a hospital. Um, they're just like, you know, they're these legacy companies, just they, 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 they kind of squash innovation. They talk innovation, but they squash innovation. So the innovation is going to come from the private, the private side or on the fringes. But it's going to require a partnership to come together to crack the code on – whether it's appointment scheduling like a ZocDoc or if it's, you know, how do you handle records uh, in, a, in a timely way. Um, I can imagine one of the things that needs to be cracked is the whole issue of um, interoperability, right? When we talk about electronic health records and as my partner Nuno says, you know, that's one of the first things that he would want to do is to create a single EMR, a, a medical record. Because the problem is, is that all that data, we talk about waste and wasted opportunities to really impact care, is all this data is siloed. And so, and patients who actually purchase healthcare don't even have access to their own data in any meaningful way. And so if you created a single EMR, that was patient-facing but also provider-facing, you know, that would be a way to if – you, if you look at how do we think about disease and understanding mining data sets, and it's already happening, big data, big data, that's, it's, it gets thrown out a lot in other verticals, other sectors of industry. But in healthcare, that's where the, the hugest, the biggest opportunity is to get insights from all this data, whether it's prescription data, laboratory data, just narrative that's sitting inside medical records where you could tap into that and get some really interesting insights. So I know it's veering off the No, but the I also point. want to know how the ubiquity of the smartphone kind of changes this. Now suddenly everybody is carrying a powerful it is computer. The gateway, it is the gateway to care, I think. It's, it, the smartphone it, it, is. The smartphone Everybody's is. carrying a powerful computer, computer with yeah. a camcorder and powerful camera in it. I've seen these ads. I think Anthem says you can now have visits with certain doctors. Uh, over an app, I think for fifty dollars, people right. complain mm-hmm. that you know you make me wait. For example, at this orthopedic practice, it's the longest wait in the world, and then finally the orthopedist comes out and is like, "Doctor, my plantar fasciitis is killing me. Will you take a look at it?" And he's like, uh, "Just wear what's comfortable. All right, man. All right, I'll see you later." Uh, and it's a sixty dollars copay. Um, you know, I, I at that point I was like, "Man, I wish I, there was a there was a better way for me. I wish there was almost a Yelp." where people would compete for my services. There should be a marketplace where doctors really want, there's got to be a passionate plantar fasciitis person out there who wants to look in my eyes and feel my pain, damn it, and give me a great orthotic and um, therapy regimen, right? But it, it just doesn't lend itself to that. And meanwhile, I'm thinking, well, I do have a smartphone in my pocket. Well, I can do my research. U.S. News, for example, 
compiles all these best of lists. There are, you know, big ad inserts still for magazines about the best doctors here and there. These roads kind of have to converge. I'm not saying restaurant reviews are the same as having a doctor, but oh, absolutely. a lot of this stuff is going to happen regardless and probably because of the cacophony of the system. TripAdvisor meets open table in healthcare has got to happen and will yeah. happen. I think, I think the rise of consumerism in healthcare is really going to push that forward. I think patients um, are f- getting more engaged as we talked about skin in the game. The smartphone is really that gateway to access where people will consume care. Listen, you can you can have a virtual visit with your doctor today. There are multiple different vendors there for a fee for 49 bucks that will allow you to have a sort of a, an urgent care virtual visit. Um, and not only in terms of care delivery, but think about the the diagnostics you can get on your phone. I mean, it's 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 already happening. You can get your heart rate and get your blood pressure. You can do you can integrate other sensors, and so that that smartphone becomes the integrator. Um, in 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 another way, I mean, you could almost do some blood testing, potentially lab on a chip that goes into the, into a phone. Now, of course, you'd say to me, well, God, that would cannibalize your model. No, not necessarily, because there's still beyond blood testing. Uh, that's only a small small piece of it, but the power of a smartphone to really um, – there's a great book by Eric Topol who's a cardiologist out of, at Scripps called The Patient Will See You Now. And The Patient uh, Will See You Now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a recommendation? It is. Um, spin this forward for me, Dr. Phil. In the few minutes we have left, what are your predictions, your aspirations, your frustrations? Open-ended, freestyle. At this point, I think that ultimately we will – by default, move towards lurching towards a, a single-payer system. Then we can move on to making the most efficient system possible. One of the things I ha- have to play devil's advocate to a little bit is that, you know, we are good at being consumers with some things. I think healthcare is very difficult to be a good consumer because, you know, the, the, the typical individual doesn't know what good healthcare is. You know, I don't. You know, when I had a gallbladder issue, I went to the ER. I just want someone to take it out. I don't care. They could have had a plumber come in and take it out. I wanted it out. I wasn't going to check my app. You know, but ultimately, you know, we, we have to sort of leverage ways of, of, of finding out, you know, okay, what is true quality? What's, what's really good? How, how, do, how do we take the technology that we have and use that to make our our personal experience and relationship part of medicine that much better. I, I think ultimately we will get there. You know, after almost 40 years of medicine, I, I still am optimistic that, that we'll, we'll, we'll get there. We'll lurch forward. Dr. K, in closing? So the promise of technology is really to really provide tools. It's a means to an end. It's not an end in itself. I, mm-hmm. I, I think Phil agrees. And that the promise really is AI, bots, all these things that are going to help doctors be better healers. But at the end of the day, EQ is, is going to need to be more important than IQ. Okay? So that, that you know, for me as a doc, you know, we're healers. And I came into medicine to create healing experiences, and I still need to do that. Listen, a smartphone is not going to do that for me. It's it's a tool for me, but ultimately, it's that engagement that uh, between a human and a human. And 
Nuno and I started a company before Igbo called C3 Nexus, which was about remote monitoring and uh, health coaching and maybe a bit ahead of its time in terms of a revenue path. But really, the idea was, you know, we're in a society where we wait till it's broken and then go to the most expensive provider. We have technology to be able to, like your car, like OnStar, to be able to detect things that are going on in your body and then escalate those to the right provider. And it doesn't always have to be a physician, right? There, so we have to, so I, I envision medicine being tech-driven but still interfacing with, with human potential, human, uh, human talent. And that talent is a team. So medicine is a team sport and will be a, is becoming a team sport where a doctor may be the captain of the team, but there are plenty of other uh, caregivers, including you know, spouses and, and brothers and sisters and neighbors, and, and it becomes a community uh, of healing. And so that's, that's why I'm still optimistic because I still believe in the human part but I'm also excited about the technology part. You know what I believe in, finally? What's that? Three words. Wait for it. <laughs> Lipitor Jello shots. We got to get in on it. <laughs> Call your VCs, man. It's the next big thing. This journalism thing really isn't paying off for me, but I really appreciate it. Dr. Shave Kapadia, co-founder and chief medical officer of Igbo, joined by his old pal. I had no idea you guys knew each other, much less worked with one another. Dr. Phil Duncan, venerable Central Virginia cardiologist. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Robin. Thanks, Robin. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Catch us on NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast, WRIR, and now, no joke, seriously, check it out, Beatgasm. I love them. It's really innovative. We are open access, homeopathic, anaphylactic, in cahoots with primary care physicians, transdermal, and uh, now we take Diners Club. I'm Robin Farzad. Back at you next week. I want a new-